On Tuesday, November 30th, Oxford community was hit with a tragedy, a mass shooting that claimed the lives of four students at Oxford High School. Seven more were wounded, and at the time of this recording, several more were still recovering in the hospital. The dead are Madison Baldwin, 17, Tate Meyer, 16, Hannah St. Juliana, 14, and Justin Schilling, 17. Oxford community is still reeling from this tragedy, and my heart goes out to the loved ones of the victims, the survivors, and all who have been impacted. Losing a loved one in any circumstance is never easy, never mind in such a cruel and tragic way. The survivors escaped with their lives, but suffered injury, and watched something horrific happen to them and people they know. They may grapple with this trauma for the rest of their lives. The school and its community lost valuable lives, and we will never know what those lives may have achieved. They all have our condolences and our sympathies. Healing will not be easy, but a strong, unified community can pull together and recover with time. Getting into the details of this crime, here is the timeline of events that we know so far. The alleged shooter, a 15-year-old boy, had no disciplinary record at the school and just the weekend before was given a handgun from his parents as an early Christmas present. He and his mother spent time at the shooting range together over the weekend. The day before the shooting, he was caught by a teacher looking at ammunition online on his cell phone and was brought to a guidance counselor where he explained that shooting was a family hobby. When the mother was contacted by school personnel in regards to this, she did not respond and texted her son, LOL, I'm not mad at you, you have to learn to not get caught, end quote. The following day, a teacher spotted him making a drawing of a handgun, pointed at a bleeding body and a laughing emoji with blood everywhere and the thoughts won't stop, help me, written as a caption. He was taken out of the classroom and sat in a guidance counselor's office where they met with the parents, determined there was no risk, and after the parents refused to take him home, sent him back to class just hours before the shooting began. The parents were also instructed to have their son see a therapist within 48 hours. When the shooter stopped his rampage, he turned himself into sheriff's deputies arriving on the scene. The parents, hearing reports of a shooting at the school, searched their home for the handgun they had bought, and upon finding it missing, promptly reported its absence to the police. During a video arraignment on Wednesday afternoon, the authorities told a judge that investigators had recovered two videos from the suspect's cell phone which were made the night before the attack. The student is seen talking about shooting and killing students the next day at Oxford High, they said. A journal in his backpack also detailed his desire to shoot up the school, the authorities claim. The shooter is being charged as an adult with one count of terrorism causing death and four counts of first-degree murder, which could lead to a life sentence if he is convicted. He has pled not guilty. 
The prosecutor has also decided to charge both parents with four charges of involuntary manslaughter each. The parents pled not guilty, claiming in their arraignment that they had no idea their son was planning this act and that they did in fact have the handgun used, locked up, and secure, disputing the claims of the sheriff's department. I would like to take a moment to address some of these charges. The terrorism charge against the alleged shooter seems bizarre, but is not unprecedented in Michigan. Michigan's terrorism statute, passed like so many others in the aftermath of 9-11, is unique in that it defines terrorism much more broadly than the feds or other states or countries do. The key part of that definition here is, quote, an act that is intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or influence or affect the conduct of government or a unit of government through intimidation or coercion, end quote. That first part is a very low bar in that intimidation of the civilian population alone is enough to charge someone. The prosecutor needs to prove that intimidation of the civilian populace was an actual goal of the shooter. She claims that she has that, but the evidence is not yet available to the public. Troubling still is the unprecedented act of charging the parents with involuntary manslaughter. In order for the parents to be culpable for the crimes of their son, they would have had to have both purchased the weapon, knowing their son had severe issues, and left that weapon unsecured. In the arraignment, their attorney claimed both that they did not know their son was unwell and that the weapon was secured properly. If the prosecution can provide supporting evidence that the shooter's intentions were intimidation and that the parent's negligence allowed the shooting to happen, then that is that. But if she cannot prove this in court, despite her claims, then she appears to me like so many other prosecutors do overzealous, with a drive to make a name for herself in front of the national press, and perhaps pushing a radical agenda to turn the war on terror inwards against gun owners. But again, if she can prove these claims, so it will be. Justice must be served for the victims of these crimes. In the light of this tragedy, we must take the time to do a root cause analysis of what causes school shootings and craft solutions that strike at the root of these issues so that these tragedies are, if not eliminated, greatly diminished. School shootings have two separate causes that can be ascertained, access to weapons and mental illness or unwellness driving to kill. Let's tackle weapons first. There are three whys to the access to weapons problem. Parents leave their weapons unsecured, or children acquire their own weapons, be they guns or knives, and then they get into the school building with those weapons. That parents leave their weapons unsecured has three causes. The cost of owning a safer lockbox, ignorance, and that parents may be overconfident in their abilities to monitor their children and teach them gun safety or anti-violent values. First, the cost. One of the cheapest firearms is the High Point Pistol, available, brand new, for less than $200. When you consider that even a cheap lockbox costs as little as approximately $50, 
25% of the cost of the actual weapon, then cost could be a real hurdle for certain people. Second, ignorance. The human capacity for ignorance knows no bounds, of course. It stands to reason that gun owners are no more immune from this than the general population, and thus a thought never even occurred to them to keep their weapons locked. Lastly, gun-owning parents may overestimate themselves and their children in regards to gun safety and mental well-being and choose not to have a safe. These causes to shooters getting their weapons from home presents what is to many an obvious solution. To mandate locked containers for firearms in all private residences. I would argue that this is not a great solution. First, addressing cost. I mentioned earlier the High Point pistol, available for less than $200. I brought this example up specifically because the High Point is also one of the most common weapons to be confiscated from people for carrying a handgun illegally. Many such people are charged for carrying without a permit, in part because they cannot afford CPL training and licensing fees, totaling over $250 in many places. Should poor people, the most likely victims of violent crime, be expected to pay the additional cost of a safe? Should rights be contingent on socioeconomic status? Absolutely not. All people of all incomes have the inalienable right to defend themselves. Next, addressing ignorance. Frankly, this is a slippery slope. Rights have never been contingent on intelligence. No one takes a test to exercise speech, and right now no tests, besides background checks, are administered to purchase a firearm of any kind. And if you deep dive into studies on intelligence, socioeconomic status, and race, you'll find some things that make such a test disturbing, to say the least. Now. Would an education campaign on the vitality of locking up guns help, perhaps by mandating advisories in every gun store? Perhaps, but such warnings would probably be as effective as the Surgeon General warnings on cigarettes, but if they keep one more gun secure, why not? I would also like to add that I do not think that this is the most likely cause. Then the next cause, hubris. Obviously. Gun-owning parents need to constantly evaluate the security of their weapons, but also teach their children gun safety and the value of human life. They may be thoughtful, conscientious parents who have followed all of the rules and taught their children all the rules of gun safety like a responsible parent should, and in normal circumstances their child would be a happy-go-lucky kid without a care in the world, and thus they chose to forgo locking up their weapons or even had them locked up, but left the keys available to their children. But they could have, for any reason, missed red flags or signs that their children were unwell enough to commit an atrocity with their firearms, and thus continue to leave their weapons unsecure. When lives get hectic, this is easier than many people realize. I would like to stress that every gun owner I know is extremely responsible with their weapons, especially those who are parents. I think parents leaving their weapons unsecured is an extremely rare occurrence, but it occurs nonetheless. Next, consider that the Sandy Hook shooter 
killed his mother before taking locked weapons and engaging in the infamous mass killing. A determined killer could also pick a lock or steal the keys to a safe. Biometric and digital safes exist, but they are not widely adopted because of prohibitive expense or user untrust. It should be readily apparent that safes will not stop all killers. Lastly, practically speaking, locked containers may impede access to firearms when they are needed in an emergency situation. People may not always be available to protect themselves when they need to if they have to fumble with a lock and key. People being killed by home intruders when they could have successfully defended themselves with a readily accessible firearm are no less tragic than the victims of school shootings. Who are we to decide which of those lives is more or less valuable? Should a solution that will not stop all killings have unseen consequences and impose an additional barrier to entry to those most likely to need weapons be implemented. Further, how would such a mandate be retroactively enforced upon the millions of gun owners in Michigan? How many resources would be needed to enforce compliance? How would gun owners' civil liberties be otherwise impacted? It is likely that such a law cannot be meaningfully enforced, thus how will it stop future killings? It likely won't and can't and thus it is not an adequate solution to the problem at hand. Another popularly proposed solution are so-called red flag laws, where police receive a tip-off of a potentially violent person and then swoop in and rapidly confiscate arms from would-be assailants. The law already has such provisions in place and is rarely exercised. The tip-off is critical because there must be some kind of sign that violence is imminent to justify police securing a warrant from a judge and retrieving the arms in question. When signs show up a day or even hours before a shooting, police simply cannot respond quick enough with confiscation to actually stop the crime. Never mind that such a system could be abused in egregious ways by people with an axe to grind. Note that there is already a swatting problem in the gaming community, where players call in threats to the local police against their rivals and have the police knock or even kick down their doors. And we all know how dangerous police interactions can be. Malicious students, children, or even adults could very easily fabricate such a claim against someone, and police would be liable for confiscating arms from, or even killing, a potentially innocent party. This could be a major breakdown of due process and justice, especially when we consider how the so-called justice system disproportionately targets people of color. Red flag laws pose more problems than solutions. The next cause of access to weapons is students acquiring their own weapons. But guess what? You might not believe this, but selling guns or knives to minors is already illegal, yet it happens. Sometimes people are caught for this and prosecuted accordingly. More often than not, such unscrupulous people probably commit any number of other crimes and get away scot-free. Gun control does not stop criminals from acquiring guns and giving them to minors. The last cause of access to weapons is the final phase, 
the shooter bringing the weapon into the school. There really are two main solutions to this. Metal detectors and expanded security and searches of students. Many schools, particularly in Detroit and other population centers, already have metal detectors and probably excessive searches of students. Besides violating the civil rights of students, something schools everywhere already do, the kind of damage this does to students is truly incalculable. It leads to institutionalization and marginalization of a disproportionately black student population. Studies have shown that many students, particularly students of color, feel more unsafe with cops around schools than without them. These approaches also put more police officers into more interactions with students, and numerous stories have come out over the years of overzealous school cops abusing students. Just because metal detectors and enhanced security is commonplace in cities like Detroit does not mean it should be inflicted on students everywhere. In spite of these drawbacks, the Michigan legislature passed a bill appropriating $50 million for more school resource officers and training, and Governor Whitmer rapidly signed it. This will not stop violence from happening in the immediate vicinity of schools and will not stop unarmed violence inside of the schools. Lastly, having students piled in front of a series of metal detectors makes a pretty dense line of students for a shooter to open fire upon, theoretically creating a horrific scenario. Another solution some liberty-inclined people propose is ending gun-free school zones. Schools being largely disarmed, of course, turns them into vulnerable soft targets, where retaliatory force is often kept off-site. They are an ideal target for people who want to reap as many casualties as possible. But it doesn't have to be that way. Many teachers and school staff are gun owners, and the law, as it sits right now, effectively blocks everyone but police officers from carrying a weapon in schools. Thus, teachers and other personnel are disarmed. Just as a quick aside, while the law is ambiguous on the legality of open carry in schools, it is generally frowned upon by school administrators and has resulted in school lockdowns in the past. If teachers or other staff volunteers want to be certified to carry weapons in schools and comply with any number of rules and regulations such as training requirements, locked containers, or regulated holsters, then they should be allowed to. Theoretically, this defensive force could respond much quicker than off-site police officers typically do. Unfortunately, however quickly a hero can respond to a shooting, a shooting has still taken place. A school bristling with armed staff still may not ward off a deranged individual with their hearts set on dying and mowing down however many victims before being killed. And having untrained personnel responding with deadly force yields a heightened probability of unintentional shootings, and thus potentially more deaths. The liability requirements for having guns in the hands of non-professional school staff is likely an insurmountable hurdle, and thus is not a great solution. Not that police responders have the best record for safety or accuracy. Even trained resource officers are not infallible. 
one could even cower in fear instead of actually responding to the threat, as was the case of the coward of Broward County during the Parkland shooting in 2018. Never forget that police are not legally obligated to protect anyone, including students. We do salute anyone who shows bravery and risks their own lives to save others in such life-threatening situations. It is impossible to ensure that every firearm in every home is locked up, to jail every criminal who illegally sells arms, to secure every point of access to schools with metal detectors, and to search every student for arms. Police and armed staff can only respond to, not prevent, a shooting. The cost in civil liberties, on the lives of those most likely to suffer violent crime, and on students' well-being, is incalculable. Those lives and the damage done to them are unseen, and are no less disastrous than the fatalities of school shootings. Thus, gun control and heightened security are not tenable solutions to mass shootings in schools. With weapons out of the way, we can turn to the other cause of school shootings. Why do young people want to kill in the first place? The four main causes I could identify are abuse, bullying, stress, and inadequate access to mental health care. First, abuse. Abuse propagates a cycle of violence that teaches incredibly toxic behaviors to children, driving some to be violent bullies themselves, or leaving some exceptionally vulnerable, unstable, or liable to kill. As far as crafting solutions to abuse, it can be exceedingly difficult. Child abuse is already severely illegal. However, the system clearly is not foolproof. Abuse can be so pervasive that its victims are afraid of reporting and seeking help. Our culture needs to make it even more transparent to young children what abuse and abusive conditioning looks like and make it easier for them to report and seek help before things get violent. It already is very difficult to stop child abuse from happening in the first place. People being what they are, are imperfect and sometimes hurt, jaded, and cruel, and are not easy to identify, isolate, and help. Next is inadequate mental health care, particularly in public schools. Public schools, by nature, have constraints on their budget that are not easily alleviated. Between the nature of their funding and their expenses beyond basic operating costs, they don't have the resources available for additional services such as mental health care for students. Now, the Michigan state government, like we said earlier, recently approved $50 million to train and supply school resource officers. I contend that those funds could have been better utilized on mental health services. The most common mental health assistants in schools, counselors, mean well, but most are not trained well enough, nor do they have enough time to pay enough attention to an individual student's particular needs to offer real solutions and cares. Best case scenario, they can recommend a professional that can be hired by the parents out of their pocket or with insurance, neither of which are always an option, which leaves many students without access to real professional help. This also begs the question that depending on the culture of the school and bureaucratic conflicts of interest, do parents even want their children receiving mental health care from the very same system that may or may not be 
exacerbating their child's mental health problems. Such an arrangement could be abused in egregious ways, and as we know, school administrators are not always forthright about correcting abuse in their midst. This is not an unprecedented concern, and people would be well within their rights to have reservations against such a system. Furthermore, the mental health care market has seen numerous assaults by the state. In 2019, Gretchen Whitmer signed a bill that required thousands of professionals to get licensed, forcing many out of the job market. The result has been fewer professionals available and thus higher costs, blocking more people, including children, from getting the help that they need. The solution is to free the mental health care market. We must reform or abolish occupational licensing of therapists, psychologists, and other mental health care professionals. We need more of these people to get on the job to be available to administer mental health care to children and the population at large, at a lower cost. Availability and access must be expanded, and markets are simply the best way to do just that. A surprising solution could be school choice. Parents should have the option of sending their children to a school which staffs mental health care professionals or have a private school which offers such a service at nominal cost. Not all parents may see the value of that or, as I said earlier, don't trust them, so they should not be forced to pay for that care if they don't want or need it. Also, having schools contend with market forces creates incentives to have policies which protect against systemic abuse whereas public schools force parents to simply deal with it. Another thing driving young people to kill is stress. It is well known that stress exacerbates mental illness and antisocial tendencies. School-aged children have a variety of things to be stressed about, including bullies, schoolwork, their own hormones, their parents, and home lives, and in light of the times we are in, COVID lockdowns and remote learning. I will keep this as a brief aside. There have been many reports on the mental health effects that COVID lockdowns and remote learning have had on school-aged children in particular and the population at large in general. Clearly, both were ill-advised policies and should have never been implemented. Obviously, school shootings were a thing before COVID, but it certainly has not helped, and we won't know for years to come what the long-term consequences of these policies and the full extent of the damage they caused. Two years of government-mandated trauma and distress cannot be good for the long-term mental well-being of today's youth. All right, moving on. The school system itself is a prime cause of stress and violence in turn, and we must take solutions that address the system seriously. Much has been written elsewhere about the negative effects of stress from conventional public schooling on children. Clearly, the system has issues to be worked out. In particular, public schools suffer excessive workloads on students, which exacerbates the pressure that is put upon them to succeed. They also teach in rigid, one-size-fits-all ways that frustrate students who have different needs. Also, many public schools do not have an adequate number of clubs, which fulfill the interests of all students, leading to them failing to join a community of like-minded friends, get fulfillment, accomplishment, and satisfaction in their lives. Last but not least, public schools, in a sense, participate in forced integration, where different cultures are forced to integrate and minority or outlier groups tend to suffer bullying or social ostracism 
at the hands of the larger in-groups that make up the majority. Firstly, we need to put to death the myth that the only path to success is a college education. In the face of the student debt crisis and deteriorating trust in higher education institutions, many young people are increasingly becoming less interested in secondary education. Millions of people are learning trades, note the generational crisis in skilled trade jobs, going straight to work, becoming entrepreneurs, or even tapping into the vast resource that is the internet, where the wealth of human knowledge is, if not free, exceptionally low cost. Also consider that a growing number of employers are considering removing degrees and formal education as job requirements. It is unreasonable then to push students to be stellar high school students when these options will be open to them in spite of a lack of academic success. Removing that burden from students allows them to spend their youth with much less stress on their shoulders. And while by no means a universal solution, there is a growing movement to abolish homework that is being pioneered in several classrooms across the country. This alleviates the workload on students, creating more time for leisure and extracurricular activities, making way for students to have outlets for the day-to-day -day stress. Particularly gifted students, or students who learn best from such activity, can still take on homework as an extracurricular activity. Just ask AP students. All people particularly our children, need meaning, fulfillment, and community. And what has long been one of the best ways to give that to students has been extracurricular activities. Athletics is far and away the most popular and best funded activity, which obviously does not fulfill the needs of everyone. A trend in budget reprioritization, a symptom of bureaucratic control, has left fewer and fewer resources for much else leaving many students' needs unfulfilled. More and more schools are cutting funding not only for regular elective courses such as art and music, but extracurricular clubs and activities as well. Fewer schools have drama, debate, and chess clubs, some of the most common historical extracurricular activities. Schools have also failed to innovate extracurricular activities that appeal to the changing interest of today's youth. Why not innovate a video game club or an influencer club, for example, or anything else that the current generation is interested in? While libertarians do not favor increasing public expenditure, we could certainly envision some creative accounting such as trimming back administrative staff and budgeting, or reducing the athletic program budget to pay for these programs for more students. Also, there are a wealth of groups outside the public school system geared towards children, the best examples being the Girl or Boy Scouts, Girls and Boys Clubs of America, the YMCA, etc. Community volunteers can and should step up to give children meaning, fulfillment, and a sense of belonging to a community. This fulfillment and meaning not only alleviates stress, but builds self-esteem. A solution that encompasses all of these is school choice. Parents should have more options to send their children to a school that matches up with their child's particular needs, interests, and family culture. This can alleviate the forced integration issue. Further, a market in schooling paves the way to innovation and experimentation in education techniques that can solve many of the problems of conventional schooling. This could become a widely affordable solution with tax credit programs such as what was outlined in the bills Governor Whitmer vetoed last month. 
And last but not least, private institutions have demonstrably less violence in general and even fewer tragic mass shootings in particular. What could very well be the greatest thing driving young people to kill is bullying. Nothing inspires bloodlust like suffering at the hands of others. So what in turn causes bullying? The main drivers are social conditions and conditioning, social ostracism, and self-esteem issues. Bullying ties in closely to our need to belong and be part of a community. We feel insecure when we doubt our ability to belong in a group. An unhealthy way to feel like you belong is to create a secondary group in which the uniting factor is bullying. In fragile and insecure communities and social circles, tolerance is low of any number of factors. People in these communities keep watchful eyes over each other, and anyone who steps outside the box faces ostracism and teasing and risks becoming the next victim. Some resort to bullying to avoid becoming a victim themselves. The group as a whole becomes collectively responsible for bullying if behavior is made and unaddressed by the members of the group. Such fragile and insecure communities are a symptom of collectivist and authoritarian cultures and values handed down from parents, role models, and the culture at large. This exacerbates self-esteem and interpersonal relations. Children with either low or high self-esteem can be bullies, while victims tend to have low self-esteem. Low self-esteem bullies tend to have insecurities about their social status and bully to keep that status. They require the validation of their peers. They may also be victims of abuse themselves and use bullying as a coping mechanism. High self-esteem bullies tend to have low empathy and feel that they can do no wrong and their sense of superiority is reinforced by bullying. They often have parents or role models who exemplify toxic cultural values or fail to teach them kindness and cooperation adequately. Victims with low self-esteem tend to not have healthy mechanisms to cope with teasing, may lack the strength to say no to their victimizers, or they may be overly reliant on the validation of others. They may feel isolation in school or at home and are afraid to reach out for help. They may not have been taught self-reliance or may have had it conditioned out of them. All of these tend to generate unhealthy relationships and interpersonal issues that trigger bullying. A solution that has been rolled out over the last several decades are zero-tolerance-for-bullying policies. I'm sure any student that has reported bullying within the last decade can tell you that school administrators have never fully enforced this policy. I can tell you with first-hand experience under this regime, bullies still only, at best, get a slap on the wrist. No real action is taken to correct their behavior. The policies they have are not even enforced. Thus, bullies are not held accountable and liable for the damage they do to others. But traditional school punishments, such as detention or suspension, are punitive and do not actually offer corrective actions for young people. Instead of just punitive action, School staff must be taught how to communicate real, actionable changes bullies can make in their lives to change their ways and end the cycle of violence. They also need to open dialogue between bullies and victims so that bullies understand the hurt they are inflicting, that victims learn how to healthily communicate to others that they are being hurt, and to assert the strength to say no to their victimizers. 
we must not only take away the power and influence bullies have, we must give strength, resilience, and self-esteem to those who need it, the victims. How to identify toxic behaviors and how to deal with the insecurities and values that lead to low tolerance must be taught by parents, as school administrators can only do so much. The role models of our society must be living and teaching individualistic values, self-reliance, non-aggression, and tolerance for young people to aspire to. Collectivism and authoritarianism must be stomped out at the same time. These values need to be adapted by the culture at large, from the bottom up, not forced in top-down fashion, as such forceful culture shifts always bring out reactionary responses and drive the very people who need to change to double down on their worst values and beliefs. We are too late for Madison, Tate, Hannah, and Justin. But if we are to avert future tragedies, we must strike at the root causes of school shootings. We must rethink how we approach schooling and culture to diffuse bullying and alleviate the stress and burden on young people, and hopefully drive fewer students to violence and murder. Rather than exhaust resources on futile efforts like gun control and security, we must shift focus on healing and healthy communication. Hopefully, we can address these root causes and stop these killings from happening before the thought to kill even occurs. That is all for today's message. Once again, my heart goes out to the people unjustly taken from their families and the Oxford community, to those hurt in this tragedy. We will do what we can for all of you, and hopefully make the world a safer and more free place for all.